This quarter, we're just addressing questions I hear a lot. Questions over coffee. Um, what we're doing this week, uh, it's, this morning, or sorry, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, I had a seven-point sermon. And uh, I realized that's, there's another word for a seven-point sermon. It's called two sermons. Um, so this is the first half of a seven-point sermon. And in two weeks, we'll get the second half. Next week, uh, Teddy is, is addressing the question, um, what if I'm average? Uh, but this week and the, and the week after that, we're going to go through this question. What, is, what does it mean to believe? How do I do it? What is faith? Um, and the, way, the, the manner in which I've gotten this question over the years, it usually comes from two different angles. And um, it, it will come from somebody who's considering Christianity. What, I wonder what I, what I believe about this. Um, I'm skeptical. I'm not sure yet. And the way this question comes, and I even I talked about this with a good friend last week. Um, hey, this seems like a pretty solid account of things. Like you kind of have your your ducks in a row. You know, the Bible seems seems like when you articulate the Bible, it seems reasonable. Seems like it answers fundamental questions about good and evil, about who man is, about who God is. And I and I want it to be true. What does it mean for me to start believing that it's true? What do I, how do I do that? Um, and, and often with that question, every, almost every single time somebody has asked me that question, uh, and again, this happened last week, is my friend said, I know one thing is if I saw a miracle, I'd believe it. What I, I like all this. I don't know how to believe it. But if I could see something amazing happen that nature can't explain, like the miracles that Jesus performs where a lame person, uh, a paralytic, gets up and walks, or a blind person sees, then I would believe. Um, So I've gotten the question from that angle. Also, the question comes from people who I also encounter, and maybe this is you, who I identified as a Christian coming to college. Maybe you grew up in a home, or, or not, but you grew up with some relationship to the church, you were a reasonably moral person. You acted like a Christian acts for whatever that's worth. But what happened when you came to college is all of a sudden without noticing it, um, you kind of start drifting. And so you still identify as a Christian vaguely. If people ask, you'd say, I'm a Christian. But you know on some level that you've kind of, the distance between you and what you previously espoused as your religion or your values or your beliefs has grown. And uh, you did things in high school that... You did things in college that kind of your high school self wouldn't have thought you would have done. Um, maybe you've tinkered with the Bible and you've kind of edited it to excuse yourself, but you kept drifting and you still identify as a Christian. But in moments of honesty, maybe you admit to yourself, yeah, I call myself a Christian, but there maybe is like hypocrisy in me kind of professing that at this moment. And what I profess, I believe... And yet the way I act, if I'm honest, are kind of at odds with each other. And so I've had friends and students coming from that story say, what does it mean for me to believe? I'm not sure if I do. I'm not sure if I want to anymore. But I've always said I believe. But if I'm honest, like, I'm not sure I do. Uh, And it's hard to be honest about it. 
So what we're going to do is in two parts, we're going to discuss and answer that kind of, those kinds of questions. How do I believe? What is faith? How do I do it? So what we're going to read uh, tonight is a real brief passage from Luke. And I thought it would be beneficial for us to, le- to read about um, perfect faith, uh, the faith of Jesus, and learn from Him. So this is on the Mount of Olives. This is right before He's arrested. So this is uh, Thursday, uh, Thursday night. Monday, Thursday is when we traditionally celebrate it. And He is praying, and He knows that He's about to be arrested, and within 24 hours He's going to be executed. Um, and so this is Jesus... Deciding whether or not he's going to trust God. That's actually what's happening in this brief passage. So here it is. Came out and went, and as it was his custom, the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to him, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus withdrew from him a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and this was his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. When he says remove this cup from me, he's saying remove the cup of God's wrath, because he knows that's what's going to happen at the cross. And Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, please don't make me do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus needed strength. And being in agony, he prayed once more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God is changed forever. Let's pray. Lord, faith is a confusing issue, Uh, and we ask you to teach us. We ask you that we would learn from Jesus and his faith, dear God, that you would refine our understanding and that we would see that in some ways it's the easiest thing and in some ways it's the hardest thing in the world, but I pray you would draw us to yourself. Be with us, Holy Spirit, in your name we pray. Amen. So our question for this, the first half of our seven-point sermon but also two weeks from now, is what is faith? How do I believe? And what we're going to do is we're going to go through several different things, little vignettes from Scripture and little points. And faith is not any one of these things, um, but it's also not less than these seven things. We're kind of, we're we're dissecting a very metaphysical idea. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to launch right into it. And the first thing we're going to talk about about faith is this, is faith is not quantity. Faith is about its object. And here's what I mean by this. Just this past week, somebody asked me, what is great faith? And I get that question a lot as well. And it's a great question. And the subtext, a lot of times underneath that question that we all feel is, okay, if I ask you to imagine somebody with great faith, who would you imagine? And I think oftentimes what we imagine is somebody with a lot of energy who knows a lot of the Bible. And quotes it a lot. Is that what great faith is? In some ways, I think what we do is we misrepresent what great faith is. And, and, and there's, a, there's a version of belief or faith in our culture that comes out this way. If you think about post-game interviews, the athlete credits their victory to their belief, either in God or in themselves. Uh, you know, how did you pull it out? How did y'all win? Well, we just believed. Well, we just believed. Auburn is particularly bad at this. Auburn credits, this is, I'm not kidding, they credit a lot of their victories to God, that they believed in God, and so God gave them victory. But we see that all over the place, not just Auburn. Um, and and we be, this is what we think. 
I had a ton of positive emotional energy and believed that winning was a possibility, therefore it became real. And that's how we describe belief. That it's this kind of possibility thinking. The energy and, and the energy with which I am convinced something is true, the more energy I can draw up to be convinced it's true will in fact make it true for me. And maybe that's how you feel about Christianity or trusting Jesus. The amount of energy I can draw up from within myself and, and just reiterate with, just, with might and with power and will to myself, this is true, this is true, this is true, that's somehow going to make it true, and that's what believing is. And what, I want, what we're going to talk about is this, is belief is not quantity of positive thinking. And strong faith is not building up a certain quantity or energy of really strong possibility or positive thinking. And the reason we know that is this passage in Luke. Who is the picture of perfect faith in the Bible? Flawless, unwavering belief in God. Jesus. His life depicts perfect trust in God's Word. Now look into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is His prayer. And here's my question for you. Is this what you think a picture of strong faith is? This is Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And then Jesus could not handle it. So Jesus needed help from an angel. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly... And his sweat became like great great drops of blood. So that's Jesus. Perfect faith. Perfect faith. Now, compare him to a Christian martyr, 1555, Oxford, England. If you ever read about the history of Christian martyrs, this is during the reign of Bloody Mary. She's the Catholic uh, queen over England that uh, uh, martyred a bunch of Protestant Christians. There's this guy named Hugh Latimer. And you ought to go read his story. It's amazing. And he's a famous martyr because he has these incredible quotes when he, famous, when he faced both his sentence of death, uh, so when he was actually standing before the court and they sentenced him to death, and then also the things he said while he was burning were incredible. And you should go read them. But here's, what, here's his last statement at his trial. I thank God most heartily that he has brought my life to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by that kind of death. Here's what Hugh Latimer's most famous quote is. He's being burned. This is while he's being burned with uh, Nicholas or Thomas Ridley, another guy who's being burned for his belief. And this is what he says, Hugh Latimer. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. He is famous in Christendom for burning at the stake with great zeal. And that's nothing how Jesus went out, is it? And so my question to you, Jesus, the way Jesus went out is, God, please don't make this happen. I don't want to do this. That's how Jesus went out. My question is, who had great faith? Did Hugh Latimer have greater faith than Jesus? I'll put it this way. Maybe you've heard a comparable illustration. I grew up as a summer camp kid, always going to summer camps. 
And, you know, at some point you get big enough to do the ropes course stuff where you're doing these elements 60 feet up in trees, you're doing the climbing walls and all that kind of stuff. And you remember the first time, I remember the first time you put on the harness and you're looking at these kids who've been doing it for years and they have all this confidence and they're jumping off the platform 60 feet up and they're rappelling down the wall and just hopping off of it and everything. And I'm putting on the harness still staying on the ground and you've had this experience and your heart is just feels like it's going to burst out of your chest. It's just pounding. And you can, like, hear your heart in your ears and everything. And your hands get all clammy. And then you get nervous about being able to hold anything. And you're just kind of falling apart with, am I going to be okay? And I watched all these kids jump off, right, with tons of confidence who'd done it before. Here's my question. Was the condition of my safety in any way, shape, or form diminished or weaker due to my anxiety and trepidation? Was the condition of my safety in any way, shape, or form diminished or weaker due to my anxiety and trepidation? Because what I did is I just slowly eased off. I remember the V-swing at Alpine Camp for Boys in Mentone, Alabama. I slowly eased off that platform, terrified, right? But I stepped off, completely terrified. Was the condition of my safety in any way, shape, or form diminished by my trepidation? Absolutely not. Did the amount of zeal in any way, shape, or form affect how much the rope would hold me up? Absolutely not. The the saving quality of our faith was exactly the same. The rope held me with the exact amount of security that it held with the kids who were running and jumping off. Strong faith actually has almost nothing to do with the amount of positive mental energy you can muster. The strength of faith has only to do with the object you trust in. And so a strong rope will hold the most terrified and the most confident camper. And a thread will break for both the most terrified and the most confident camper. See, it has nothing to do with their state has everything to do with the object. Faith is about the object and not the quantity. And the question is not, do you really, 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 really believe hard in Jesus? That's just not the question. And as long as you feel that question and feel like that's what the question is, you're going to feel terrified that I haven't exhibited enough faith. I haven't enough. I need to really, really, really believe hard. I need to really believe hard. The question is, in whom do you trust? It's not how hard do you believe. It's in whom do you believe. Faith has really nothing to do with quantity at all. It has to do with object. That's our first point about faith. Secondly, faith is not a tool for getting what you want. It's actually trust in what God wants. In Jesus, you learn more about faith. He didn't have great zeal. He was terrified. And he didn't... uh, But he also didn't think this. He didn't think faith was this kind of capital I build with God to get things I want. And we often relate to God kind of trading in faith currency when we say things like, I'm trusting God for fill in the blank, these things that we want in life. I'm trusting God for this. I'm I'm just giving it up to God. Um, Maybe you've heard or used that kind of language. And you feel like, I'm going to believe, and I'm going to believe really hard, and God's going to be impressed by how hard I believe, and therefore He's going to take care of this thing for me. 
this discomfort, this undesirable circumstance, whatever it is, social stuff, uh, job stuff, family stuff, money stuff. And you just think, if I build up a faith, enough kind of faith units, nobly kind of giving this area of my life up to God, He's going to then give me what I want. But all over the Bible, we have people of great faith who ask God to remove hard things in their life Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. I pleaded with God. Paul uh, talks about this thing. We don't know what it is, this thorn in his side. It could be a habitual sin. It could be an illness. It could be persecution. But he says, I pleaded with God three times. This is Paul. Will you remove this thorn? And God didn't remove it. Jesus in the garden again. Will you let this cup pass from me? And God did not let the cup pass from Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Because Jesus shows us in the second half of his prayer more about what faith is. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we, can, we, we think faith is this zeal that earns God's favor, and then we can use it to kind of redeem it for favorable circumstances. I am so noble for giving it up to God, therefore God will give it to me. And that's, this is a little dated now, that's Tim Tebow faith, right? I believe God is going to give me victories. I believe He's going to give me a boyfriend and girlfriend. I've finally kind of given that up to Him. He's going to get me into medical school if I trust God with this job application. I'm going to trust God to fix this situation. Let me say this, it is not wrong to bring petition to God. It is right and it is good and He wants you to. However, it is not Christian faith when you're simply trying to trade belief capital with God to get what you want. That is not Christian faith. And here's an example of that. My girls are seven and nine. A lot of y'all have met them and we're riding bikes and we're scraping knees daily. And you remember that as a little kid, scraping your knee and getting that strawberry. And it stings so bad and there's like gravel in there. And it's, like, it, it's really hard for me because I think it's cool, but they're crying and they're like, it's not cool, Dad. And I'm like, the scars are kind of cool. Anyways, they're confused. I get confused. But Britain comes in, little Britain, one of my seven-year-olds, comes in. Knee scraped, and you just know how it stings. Those kind of those those surface wounds, especially when you're a little kid. And she sits on the edge of the sink, and we get you know either a rag and water, or we get hydrogen peroxide, and we're fixing to clean her knee. And this is what she says right before we clean her knee, right? Daddy, don't, daddy, don't, daddy, don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. All right? Because you know, you remember when that rag touches your knee. It just like burn. It just got ten times worse. You're like, why did you make this worse? Like I was already not having fun. Now I'm having even less fun, right? Is it okay for her to say, "Daddy, don't. Daddy, don't. Daddy, don't." Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. Does she plea with me with tons of zeal, more zeal than she's ever exuded toward anything else in life, right? Is it a good idea for her to make her determination of whether or not I'm a good father based on how I grant or respond to her appeal? That's a terrible idea, isn't it? Because faith is not trusting God to enact your plan. 
faith is trusting God to enact His plan. That even though we can't quite see it all, that he, we actually start to believe he's powerful and he is good. And you would say to little Britain, you would say, trust your dad. I realize you can't understand this. Trust your dad. Look to his character. Look to his office. Realize who he is. And yes, this will be painful. But his will for you is actually better for you than your will for you. So you would tell little Britain, and you would be right to do it. And this is why we need to pay attention to the Lord's Prayer when we pray it, because we pray something very close to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane when we say, Lord, your will be done. Make your petitions to the Lord. But if your trust is conditioned, if you're going to condition your trust of God on whether or not He answers your petition the way that you wanted, then you can't really say you trust Him. You're just bartering with Him. The prayer of faith is, God, I trust that you're powerful and I trust that you're good, that you understand actually what is good for me better than I do, that the circumstances you bring into my life are exactly what I need. And oftentimes what happens is we actually miss the great wisdom and care that God is bringing presently into our life because we think, i got to get God to get me out of these circumstances. And then once He gets me out of those circumstances, then I'll be flourishing and experiencing His love and experiencing the blessing of being in Christ. So I'm going to trade my vigor of faith to get out of it and over here. And you're missing the fact that God is doing great work in your life in this place where the peroxide is on your knee and it burns. Because he knows you need that cleaning and it's going to sting. And he's going to apply it even though you're saying, Daddy, don't, Daddy, don't, Daddy, don't. Because he loves you. Faith is trusting his words over ours. It's not just trusting God to do what we want him to do. It's trusting God to be more wise than us. And so there's also a warning here that a chief indicator, a chief indicator of the lack of faith is not lack of zeal or lack of vigor. Or a lack of God granting your requests. Like, well, He gives me more of my prayer requests or less of my prayer requests or my petitions. A lack of faith is actually revealed in the way we customize the Bible. We customize it on things we don't like so that it accommodates our lives, on our greed, on our anger, on our drunkenness, on our selfishness, on our sexuality, on our unforgiveness... Unbelief is not a lack of zeal, and unbelief is not a lack of vigor. Unbelief is a customized scripture to your lifestyle. That reveals, I don't trust God, I just like it when He agrees with me. And I disregard Him, with, uh, I disregard him when He doesn't. That's not faith. That's simply trying to build a consensus with God. That's not Christian faith. So faith is not quantity, it's about object. And faith is not a a tool that you trade with God to get what you want. Faith is actually about trusting God and what He wants. And then lastly, faith is taking God at at His word. Faith is submission to His words. What faith is, and this is what we're going to talk about more next week, is it's the matrix by which you interpret and act in the world. I'm going to explain that more next week, but here's what I mean. Here's another example in our household. In our house, something Elizabeth and I say to the girls all the time, we have four girls, seven and nine. What that means is there's a lot of conflict. And um, one of the things we say is, girls, when you hurt each other or you do something wrong, if you will take responsibility for it, and then you will say, I am sorry, and will you forgive me, 
We say there is always forgiveness ready to be given right at that moment, and it will go well with you. But lying, denying, justifying, or excusing your missteps is actually going to prolong misery in the house. It's going to break down relationships. Right? When everybody refuses to take responsibility for themselves and just excuses and justifies and explains why they were just, right, and, st- and breaking their sissies' Legos. Right? That is one of the great sins of the Wood household. So they start fighting, and somebody breaks Legos or whatever it is, and then we, you know, you, you got to figure out who the perpetrator is, and that's never really clear. But, um,. <laughs> But what unfolds once you kind of, you know, figure out who that might be is they start to state their case. What did you do? And they don't ever say what they did. What they do is exactly what we did. They start explaining why they're reasonable in doing what they did. Right? They have their protests, their points of order, their interruptions. And the reason why is because when we do something wrong... Our immediate instinct is their immediate instinct. Explain it away. And what does that do? We don't take responsibility to explain away and say, there's ways I'm not accountable on this. There are ways I am more reasonable on this. What that does is it prolongs the issue, makes it messier and longer and more gray. The intuitive act of defending and excusing wrong actions, which we all do, leads us further down a path of relational breakdown. Right? Things can't start resolving, so there's more time spent harming each other. And right now, all of us can, I'm, everybody in this room can recall past or current friendships, relationships with parents, people you live with, friends, in which the two parties are both excusing each other's act, or excusing your own action, justifying your own action, they're excusing their action, justifying your own action, and you feel the friendship separating. I'm sure all of us can, are, can also quickly recall friendships that are now over because both sides had plenty of excuses and reasons for why they acted the way they acted. And it just, that just leads to relational breaking. Nobody gets argued back into reconciliation. It's never happened. So Mary Walton has been doing, one of our nine-year-olds, she started doing something this past week during spring break. And it's really, it's beautiful, but, um, and I'm kind of bragging on her, but she started taking responsibility. And she still fusses with her sisters, but when it blows up and we have to talk, and I think Mary's genuine when she does this, and it's really beautiful, we start to talk and Mary just recognizes, you see it all happen in her mind, she recognizes, I'm about to just pick another fight by trying to make excuses. And she goes, Dad, what I did was wrong. My heart was in a bad place, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And it's amazing to watch a little nine-year-old girl stop herself in the midst of the desire to quit herself with bad justifications and just say, I'm just going to take this. I'm going to call it what it is. And this is what happens when she does that. Instead of prolonging conflict and exacerbating the relational uh, breakdown, the whole line of conflict just stops. It like, it's like it hits a brick wall. And all of a sudden, it's over. And then we're kind of sad together for a moment or two. And then forgiveness breaks out. And on the other side of forgiveness, what's cool is that actually greater and sweeter intimacy and trust occurs. Now, actually, last night, I was talking to Mary. And I just said, Mary, you're changing 
I've seen something in you. And I said, why have you started to stop defending yourself and just taking responsibility? And this is what she said. I'm kind of bragging, but it's just a good illustration. She said, because you and mommy said it will go better with me if I take responsibility and ask for forgiveness. You know what Mary Walton is showing us? She's, not, she's actually showing us faith. She has this thing in her that we all have in us that desires to not take responsibility and explain our brokenness and our sins away. And she registered, you know what? Mom and Dad said I should deal with it by taking responsibility instead of running from responsibility. She still has that instinct. I see it in her. I can see her battle it. What she's demonstrating to us is faith. Is Mom and Dad, I'll actually trust y'all over my instincts. We're going to pick this back up in two weeks about the relationship between faith and reason in a few weeks. But, uh, but, but this is kind of a, a little bit of a teaser tonight. We're going to talk about science and faith, this reason and rationality and faith, are they at odds with each other. When Mary Walton, a nine-year-old girl, who's in the midst of nine-year-old development, when she actually trusts her parents over against her own instincts, here's my question. Was she exercising reason? She absolutely was. And in fact, it's really hard to distinguish between faith and reason. She was trusting our words because they were reasonable. So far from being paradoxical, faith and reason are actually almost indistinguishable. And we're going to talk about that more next week. She reasoned, my parents actually understand relational dynamics better than I do. And so she trusted us. Luke 16, I'll close with this. Luke tells a parable, or Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. This is a parable, and he's just kind of teaching us something. What's happening in the parable is the rich man is in hell and Lazarus is in heaven. And the rich man is able to converse with Abraham in heaven. And the rich man says, Abraham, will you just send Lazarus back from the dead to tell my brothers about the reality of the afterlife? I didn't believe it. I know I don't have a chance now. Will you send Lazarus back from the dead to tell my brothers so that they will believe and they'll be saved? And Abraham says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. That's enough. Moses and the prophets is the New Testament word for Bible. That's what he's saying. They have the Old Testament. That's enough. Rich man comes back to Abraham and says, Abraham, I get what you're saying, but here's, here, get my point right here. This is actually, the, this is actually what happens in Luke 16. Um, he says, but actually if my brother saw someone come out of the grave, resurrected from the dead, and preach the gospel to him, then they would actually believe. They saw a miracle, then they would believe. This is what Abraham says. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe it if a dead person comes out of the grave and preaches to them. What's happening there? He's actually teaching us something about how faith comes. This is what I'm closing with. How do we start maybe then to have it? God actually, when he tells us that story, one of the things he's doing is he's being a good parent and he's trying to explain like, I kind of understand you better than you do. He actually gets that our most fundamental beliefs in life actually don't and even won't come through the observation of miracles. If someone, came, if someone rolled in that door in a wheelchair and Teddy jumped up and said, you're healed, rise and walk. 
right? All of us, your first instinct is, oh, then I would actually totally believe Christianity. And that's because you haven't thought very long about how you'd actually react to that moment. How would all of us, myself included, react to that moment? We'd start applying 20 different conspiracy theories based on our skepticism. Let's be honest. And my friend who actually asked the miracle question last week, I pressed him on it and I said, be honest with me. I realized at first instinct you think, if I saw somebody feed 5,000 or saw somebody heal a paralytic, you'd believe. But let's be honest. If I saw that and I'm the Christian guy, I wouldn't believe it. We're skeptics. If somebody in a wheelchair came in here and Teddy told him to stand up, none of us would believe it. We'd have all kinds of plausibility issues with it. And they would be all be very rational and logical. Right? And I appreciate my friend's honesty when he actually was like, yeah, you're right. I don't think I would believe it. And the reason why is because that's not how faith comes. How do you come to your most fundamental beliefs in life? The most fundamental things about the way you think about yourself and the world and God and reality, you know how it comes? It comes through stories. It comes through stories. If you're wondering, what do I do to get faith? You need to read the words of God. And while you read them, assume that they are true. That's how you get faith. And many of us are trying to have faith without actually doing the fundamental exercise of faith, which is hearing the words and the promises of God that God is calling you to trust. You, you just can't have faith apart from interacting with the Word of God and assuming that it's true. You don't, you, you don't need to go and try to read your Bible to make God happy with you. Another way of kind of earning some faith credits to get something out of them. You need to read the Bible in order to trust God. And there's no possibility of trusting God's Word if you're not in it. And what I want... There's a fundamental... In this room, there's a belief that everyone came into within the last four or five years. A fundamental belief that has radically... Everybody, Christian or not, wherever you identify yourself in the spectrum, every single person in this room came to a new fundamental belief that has radically altered the direction of your life for the rest of your life. A belief that has so shaped and changed you that you can't conceive of who you are apart from that belief. My question is this, how did you get to that belief? And here's what that belief is. You believe Stanford is the elite education for you. You didn't believe that 10 years ago. It's nowhere on your radar. It might be on somewhere on one of y'all's radars, which is another issue that you need therapy for, but <laughs> let's say what I think is true of most of us is 10 years ago, you did not hold that fundamental belief and you never thought that fundamental belief. But something has happened within the last three, four, five, or 10 years in which all of a sudden you came to believe Stanford is the elite education that I need to get to and accomplish. And so you actually hold that belief so dearly. Listen to what you did for it. You left your family, right? You gave four entire years of your life a ton of anxiety. You left your community, your fundamental identity, gave away four years of your life. Not six months, not a month, right? Not even a year. This is not an internship. This is four years, almost half a decade for the PhD students. It's a little bit longer, right? (laughs) You hold this belief so fundamentally. Some of y'all are going into debt which you will be in debt for over a decade. And you're like, I don't care, I'm at Stanford. You came into that new belief 
and it has grabbed hold of your life and radically changed you, and you've given over everything you are to this belief. My question is this. You didn't have that belief 10 years ago. How did you get there? That's a pretty significant change. Did you have first-hand experience of Stanford elite education beforehand? Nope. Did you have controls to test it against? Nope. A three-day college tour does not mean you had an adequate understanding of what Stanford is. How did you come to believe so strongly that Stanford is the right place for you that you're willing to give up four years of your life and a decade of debt? Here's how you came to that belief. You listened to people. That's what you did. And you thought, I think these people are credible. You listened to their stories and made a judgment about their character. You read websites and made a judgment about their character. Your guidance counselor, your parents, other friends. You walked around campus, and you know what happened when you walked around campus and somebody led your tour? You sat under a two-hour sermon about Stanford. You were preached at, and you bought it. You believed so much so, you're like, you know what? I'm going to give you four years of my life. I'm going to borrow a ton of money that I don't have to be here. The level of commitment you'll have to Stanford is staggering. You should ask yourself, how did I come to that belief? If you want to know how beliefs come into our life. The way it came is people told you stories and you made a judgment about those people's character. Are they trustworthy? I don't think any of us would trust Jesus if a, if a paralytic came in this door and was healed. If credible people told you stories and those stories made sense of reality. That's how actually you've come to believe everything you believe. And if you're wondering, how then do I believe in Jesus? You have to hear the stories of God's faithfulness. What the Bible is, is a history of people all over the map socioeconomically, all over the map religiously, ethically, all over the place, over 3,000 years, all saying... God created this world. This world was broken by rebellion in our hearts. But God is full of steadfast love and his, He's slow to anger and He's full of grace and mercy and the only hope at restoration is forgiveness because religious observance doesn't work and moral improvement doesn't fix things. But maybe God's just a God of love and He forgives. This is 3,000 years of people telling stories. People from all kinds of places in life. If you want to learn how to have faith, you've got to read the stories, and assume that they're true. And if you're not availing yourself these stories, you're going to be, here's what's going to be happening. You are hearing and watching other stories. And those stories are giving an account of reality, and those stories will shape you, and you'll become those stories. The call to Christian faith is a call to have conversation with the Word of God. Let's pray.